You are listening to The Airing Cupboard, the podcast where the extraordinary stories of ordinary people get an airing. Phew, that's a mouthful. Hello everyone and welcome back into The Airing Cupboard. First of all, Thank you all so much again for uh, your reviews on iTunes. I love reading your comments and hearing your thoughts about the podcast. So really, thank you and keep them coming. Secondly, wow, you have sent me so many stories in the last two weeks. And I have interviewed some fantastic people and uh, I can't wait to, um, to voice details. So thank you. There again, keep them coming. And then last but not least, something extraordinary happened two weeks ago. So it's about the last story, and I will not give it away too much in case you haven't heard it yet, but the story was told by Jenny, and she was speaking about her friend, Ivo, and she had met him in the 1990s in Kuala Lumpur, under the Chinese lanterns. So now she hadn't really kept in touch with him during the last 25 years. They were only exchanging email very sporadically. And at the time of sending her story on to me, she had had no news from him for a while and her emails had remained unanswered. She knew that he now lives in Central Africa and she wondered if maybe his situation had changed. Maybe his life had taken a twist. Anyway, she worked on her story and she sent me a narrative via email on Saturday the 24th of April at 14.55. And at 14.58, an email arrived in her inbox. It was Ivo. How serendipitous is that? This project amazed me. As more I delve into the conversions and connections of the world, more they reveal themselves to me in all the infinite mystery. And I am left with a question, what truly is serendipity? The Cambridge Dictionary says, the fact of finding interesting or valuable things by chance. So, if indeed it is the fact of finding Does that mean those interesting and valuable things are there, present, at all time? So, is it just a question of being attentive? Leaving enough space in our lives to be able to notice, see and integrate those little moments of magic and wonder? I don't know. I am enjoying the journey of discovery, and I hope you do too. So, enough useless ramblings, and let's get on with our story. It was during the early 1990s. Both Elizabeth, she preferred being called Beth, so I will call her Beth. So both Beth and her husband were working in London. They had met on the benches of the same faculty at uni eight years earlier. They had fallen in love and they had married three years later. 
they were both very committed to their work. Very successful, working long hours, a lot of work and very little play. Because you see, they had a plan. They had mapped their lives. They would both work very hard for a few years and save as much money as they possibly could. And then they would buy a nice house in a greener space, maybe even in a countryside. And they would start a family. Two children would be great, a boy and a girl, one of each. That would be perfect. And a few years had passed and they had saved. They had saved a whole lot of money. There was plenty there for a healthy deposit on any houses. But somehow, the time to start looking and getting on with the second part of their plan was never right. Maybe next year when this potential deal at work is in the bag, or maybe not now because this promotion is within reach and money is going to get a lot better. They got caught up. And like dry sand escapes between the fingers of a hand, their lives inexorably passed them by with barely any imprint. She says she remembers very little about those years, as if they had all merged into each other. And then their first baby arrived. That had been a bit of a surprise. A girl, a bunny baby, always happy. She was so easy. She was sleeping through the night at eight weeks, taking very little place. And it was just as well because soon Beth was back at work. They had found a fantastic childminder who could accommodate her long working hours. And then she felt pregnant again. The rented flat in which they were living at the time was going to be too small. So they decided to buy. They bought a bigger flat in a nice area of town. In hindsight, Beth wonders why they didn't move out of London then. What was the excuse? That wasn't the right moment. Her husband's job was taking off big time. And she also was determined to show them all at work that she could remain at the top of her game while being a working mother with two very young children. She was going to show them all that it was in no way going to hinder her ability to be excellent at her job. She felt she had so much to prove. And baby number two arrived. Another girl. The birth had been complicated and the newborn never seemed to settle. She would cry through the night, wriggling her tiny little body and waking up her older sister. They all grow exhausted. Especially Beth. The days also were long 
and draining. She felt all she was doing was changing nappies, warming up bottles, and looking at the clock. She was a little numb. She would meet other mothers and they would speak to Beth about the happiness of motherhood, the fulfillment of their lives, how much the little one slept and ate and smiled and spoke and pooed. And Beth would wonder how women could belong to such different worlds. Those conversations and the feelings they were conveying had no echo in her. Of course she loved her girls, she adored her girls, but that was no enjoyment, just sheer sense of responsibility. Doing the job correctly, she was mostly eager to do things right, get them in a good routine. And soon, she started work again. She felt she had to work even stronger. To make up. Make up for what? She didn't know. And to prove. Prove what? She now wonders. The youngest child was more and more demanding. Still waking up most nights. Often, her husband would get up, but she would be refusing to settle. Only in the arms of her mother did the child seem to find peace. And often, Beth would fall asleep on the sofa, the baby's fat cheek squished on her chest. And she would be back in the office a few hours later at the top of a game, as she said. But of course, it caught up with her. It was during a particularly difficult day at work. She felt she wasn't coping well. Then she felt her heart beating fast, very fast. Or was it irregular? She couldn't really say and... Alone in the toilets, she had serious chest pains, breathing difficulties. She felt as if she was dying. And she thought of the girls. She only spent a few hours in hospital. Her heart was fine, healthy, strong. What she had experienced was a full-blown panic attack. She was asked to take some time off work. She did, and that is when the gates opened, and all that she had kept at bay came flooding, and she drowned a bit. Post-natal depression, they had said. So she took a day at a time. She refused medication, but agreed to start the therapy. And bit by bit, she deconstructed and then reconstructed. She started cooking, reading, practicing a bit of yoga, 
But the biggest change of all was in her relationship to her daughters. To this day, she cannot explain how or what, but there had been a shift somehow. In herself, maybe. She felt more in the moment with her daughters. She didn't mind anymore that things were well done or correctly organized. She learned to inhabit the present, just to be with them. And she started feeling fulfilled. But still, something needed to change, a drastic change. She wasn't really sure what. On a spring Sunday in May, as they were driving through the Suffolk countryside, on their way to her father's to take him out for Sunday lunch, there was an accident. The road in front of them was shut. There were no diversions, so they had to just try their luck and drive through villages they didn't know and just try to find their way. The roads were narrow and bordered by hedges. The hawthorn was flowering. They had opened the car windows and the girls were happy at the back, their hair dancing in their faces. And that is when they saw it. A cottage. Pink walls with white window frames. His thatched roof was falling on the upstairs windows as a fringe would fall a little too low on shy eyes. Along the little path, the forget-me-not were sprinkling the blues and a massive peony was bravely trying to hold up a heady head of dark pink blue. A white clematis was creeping its way around the front door and a fat brick chimney flanking its side, covered with glossy green ivy. The grass all around had grown too tall and the cherry trees were shaking their branches on the breeze in a shower of snow petal. A very typical cottage like thousands of others through the county of Suffolk. But this one had not been altered too much and it had retained its original soul and charm. And at the front of the house there was a sign, Long Farm Cottage, and next to it, another. Two simple words, heavy with promises. For sale. And that very moment, she knew exactly what needed changing in their lives. The move happened very quickly. Within a few months, the family was settled at Long Farm Cottage. And Beth was pregnant again. Twins, another two girls. They came rolling into their lives the next summer, bringing with them a bundle of joy and chaos and happy madness. The house could barely contain the family. There was no more plans, just life. And so started many happy years under the thatch roof of the cottage, and its old walls absorbed the laughter of the games and then the parties, the shouts of the playroom bickering and the teenage fights. 
the whispers of their confidence and secrets. And the house peacefully breathed on the life of the family, like it must have done many times before through the centuries for all the other families that must have lived there before them, as it is in every old house, in every country, on every continent. At the time, you are lured into thinking that the place belongs to you, but really, you are only passing through. And then, very recently, Long Farm Cottage grew quieter. The two eldest flew the nest, spreading their wings on the experiences of the wider world, and the twins grew very independent. And Beth found she had a lot more time for herself, and she turned her attention to something she had always wanted to do, genealogy, tracing the history of her family. She was especially interested in finding out about her mother's sides of the family. Beth had sadly lost her mother when she was 12. Her mum had been an only child and there was no aunt, uncle or cousin to ask. She knew they had links to Suffolk, but she wanted to find all she could. So she took a subscription to a well-established family history website and very quickly she was put in contact with a distant cousin. The lady had done quite a bit of research herself. Strangely, she only lived a few miles away and she was in possession of all sorts of memorabilia, copies of birth certificates, deeds, family photographs, all sorts of things. And on that day, they met for the very first time in the lady's kitchen. They were sitting at the wooden table, looking through some old photographs that Beth had never seen. And one in particular caught her attention because the scene was familiar and tender. A woman was standing in front of a cottage with one baby in her arms and two young children hiding in her skirts. The photograph must have been taken in the 1920s or 1930s. She asked her cousin who the woman on the photograph was. It was Beth's great-grandmother, she said and she believed that the baby in her arms was Beth's grandmother, in front of the cottage where the family lived at the time. There was something very familiar to the scene, and more Beth studied the photograph, more it bugged her. And that is when it hit her. The cottage behind a woman and children. It was uncanny. It looked exactly like her own home. The way the thatch roof fell on the windows, the large brick chimney on the north wall, it was the very same house she was adamant. She turned the photograph and there it was, on the back, in a beautiful handwriting. Long Farm, Suffolk, 1931. She stared at the words, those simple words, and between them, she could read a story that hadn't yet been written. The story about the many roads she had taken and traveled to simply come home.
I hope you have enjoyed Beth's story. It had got me thinking a lot about the pull some places have on us and why somehow seems to be speaking to us, some place or town appear so familiar. And so here are another two short stories exploring exactly that. On retiring from teaching, I decided to relocate. My wife had been working in Colchester two days a week and on her way to the train station had seen a 17th century house in the center of town that she thought I would like. When we went to view the house, I felt there was something about it that was surprisingly familiar. Although I remarked on this fact both to the vendor and to my wife, I dismissed the feeling as simply my imagination. We eventually bought the house and moved in. Some months later, whilst researching my family history, I was looking through the 1911 census records and discovered that my great-grandparents, my grandmother and her 14 siblings had lived directly across the street in a house facing the one I had bought. And at the time, the ground floor of my house had been a shop selling vegetables and fruit. I wonder how many times my granny had visited that shop. My name's Nicola Cornick and I work in a 17th century hunting lodge for the National Trust. It's a, a hobby for me um, because I'm a writer uh, as a job. So when I started to work at home on my own, I realised I needed some company. And so the first thing that drew me to working at Ashdown was actually the need to get out and about to meet people um, and to actually have real life contact instead of sitting in front of my computer talking to imaginary people all day. Um, um, and because I'd always um, had a fascination with history and uh, wrote about history, uh, it seemed logical to try and find somewhere nearby where I could, uh, where I could combine all these interests, where I could work. I knew that Ashdown was there. It wasn't. It wasn't a surprise to me because it's only uh, a mile down the road from the village in which I live. But I had never visited it. It's a tiny little um, National Trust property that isn't open very often, so I'd never been inside. And so I signed up to do that and joined the team of people who worked there. It's a, an interesting thing, but um, a lot of people who are in this team, and I've worked with them for many years now, I've been there 18 years this year, um, and a lot of people say there's something about Ashdown that sort of draws you in. Um, and of course, when I started there, I thought, well, everybody probably feels like that about the kind of places that they work at. That um, In that context, I think, a lot of people who volunteer for the National Trust feel very drawn to the places where they work um, and feel a special connection to them. So it wasn't a surprise to me that I very quickly developed a sort of a, a fascination with the house, with the people who had lived there, with the, the characters and the historical story that they had to tell. Uh, and it's no exaggeration to say I have become probably obsessed, certainly my husband would say obsessed with the house and with the Craven family who uh, were the people who lived there for 350 years before the house was given to the National Trust in the 1950s. So I researched the history of the house itself, the architecture, um, the family, their other estates, where they came from, all this kind of thing, um, and put together a, a, a big story, if you like, that I could tell to the visitors when they come to look around, um, and always planned as well to write 
um, a non-fictional um, book about the place. Um, now, parallel to all of this, I also started to uh, look into my own family history. I thought this would be quite a challenge, and I got, again, completely consumed by it. I come from Yorkshire, and um, although my family come from all over, primarily the UK, um, a lot of my ancestors um, come from the north of England. And I knew, um, obviously because I, I, I sort of known for years and studied it, that the Craven family also came from the north of England. I was following all the different tiny links and branches of my family in various places and I was genuinely astonished that I got back to the 16th century and found um, a family connection to the Cravens. You know, whether or not that was part of what drew me to the house and to the history of the family in the first place, I don't know. Obviously, it now feels like an extra bond um, that, that ties me to the place, and I'm enormously excited and proud to have that as part of my own family tree. But I think Ashdown House and the history of that particular family was special to me before I knew this, and it has that extra dimension to it now. So it was an astonishing discovery. That was the one that really made me stop and think, you know, was there at some level uh, a part of me that that already was aware of that, um, that 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 connection between us, and was that what drew me to the place where um, where my ancestors had lived and where their story takes place? I found that amazing. Here we go. Amazing, isn't it? And also for those of you that might not have heard it, I voiced a story in July that spoke exactly about that as well. The episode is called Home and it's one of the 15 stories of series one. And by the way, all of them are available to listen to on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify and all other platforms. And of course, on our website, The Airing Cupboard. Org. So don't forget to follow The Airing Cupboard on Facebook and Twitter Instagram and please rate it and review it on iTunes and share it. I wish you all a very good two weeks and until we meet again in The Airing Cupboard, goodbye.